Good morning, gang. Hey, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter six. Um, if you uh, have been with us, we have been on a journey in a series called Disciple. If you are new, uh, and this is the first time that you're hanging out with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. But over the course of the last handful of weeks, we have been working through a new series called Disciple in which we first sought to understand what a disciple is. And then we sought to also understand the 12, the ones that we oftentimes refer to as disciples, uh, but Jesus designated as apostles. Before we dive in, let's just kind of do a quick review on what a disciple actually is. A disciple is simply a learner, uh, an apprentice, um, it's someone who believes in the ideas, um, principles of their master, and then they seek to do what their master did. Uh, you can think about Jesus learning from his father, Joseph, in the carpentry shop. Uh, you can think about this particular uh, set of men that follow Jesus, along with many women uh, who are learning from Jesus as they sit along Galilean hillsides, as they walk through the hot Judean wilderness. Um, Jesus is teaching these life lessons, and in every story, he uses a story, a parable, and he's teaching these men, and these men are becoming learners. And we know that at some point, they kind of grow in that apprentice relationship, that they not only are students, but they eventually are going to be designated as apostles. It seems uh, from the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus appoints 12 out of a multitude of disciples. And over the course of the last four weeks, we've looked at the first really four main disciples. We've looked at Peter, the rock. We've looked at his brother, Andrew. And then we looked at the sons of thunder, James and John. And today we're going to look at a guy named Philip. Uh, Philip <clears throat> is a guy that was from Bethsaida, the same village uh, that uh, a couple of other guys like Andrew and Peter were from. So likely Philip probably grew up around Andrew and Peter. It is very probable that in a small Galilean village that they had run into one another and they knew each other. They might've played out in you know, the, the, the hillside together that they knew each other. Uh, Philip um, is a guy that you'll see is listed every time that it's mentioned in the apostles list fifth. And so let's look at it in Luke chapter six. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to get you a Bible. If you um, just didn't bring it with you, we'll put it for you so you can see it. But it says this in Luke chapter six, beginning in verse 12, it says, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. That's Jesus. And all night he continued in prayer to God, aligning himself with the power of the father and the Holy Spirit. So he elects and selects these men. And it says, and when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them the 12 and whom he named apostles. Now real quick, just a quick timeout. The reason there's this designation is because in the apprentice student relationship, Jesus selects 12 in which he goes, hey, you're going to do more. There's going to be something that you do. And Jesus is going to clearly give them uh, the ability to preach the good news. And he's going to send them out um, along with many others to preach uh, you see this progressive journey that Jesus even gives the, the apostles the power to do things that natural man cannot do. And so as a result of this, he's calling these men. Verse 14, Simon, whom he called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John and Philip, and then Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus. And then there's Simon, <clears throat> who is called the Zealot. And then there's Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Today, we're going to narrow the lens in on a 
<clears throat> microscopic level on Philip. Philippos, uh, in the Greek, it means lover of horses. Um, oftentimes, uh, we see him referred only by his Greek name, and it's likely that he would have had a Jewish name. Uh, but Philip, um, again, was raised in Bethsaida. Um, there is some evidence that Philip, along with a handful of others, that is not explicitly clear, was a fisherman. Uh, we, we could grab that from John chapter 21. Uh, but if Philip was indeed a fisherman, uh, Philip was a guy who likely in the fisherman business probably was very strategic about his inventory. You, you may wonder, well, how, how do you know that? Well, as we kind of go on in our progressive journey of Philip today, we don't have a ton of scripture on Philip. There's not a whole lot to, on him like there was Peter and John. Uh, even James has a little bit more. But the reality is, is that there's enough to help us understand who he was. And what's interesting as we kind of go on through this short journey today is that Philip was kind of your pessimistic by nature kind of guy. Uh, he's the guy that often as you're sitting around with the 12 would probably have been the one who has counted the cost stacked up the inventory, and then probably would have given you the three reasons why this is either a bad idea or the reasons why this cannot be pulled off. Now, do y'all know a person like that? How many of you are like, well, I am that person, you know? Um, oftentimes, you're, you're the realist in the group, uh, but is, in your realism, oftentimes, you become a skeptic. It often, in some ways, hinders you uh, because it, it in your natural flesh, you know what can be done and can't be done. And as a result of what you know can be done and what you've experienced in your past, oftentimes you struggle to trust God in faith as to what he could do. That's Philip. Philip is very linear, very pra uh, pragmatic. He's a very practical guy. But as a result of that and seeing what oftentimes can't be done, he becomes very pessimistic in nature. Matter of fact, I would say this, the title of my message this morning is Pessimism Cannot Persist. There's a lot of us in this room that we are just pessimistic by nature. We see the half glass, we, have, we see the glass half empty, right? We don't see half full. We're, we're all oftentimes complaining and grumbling and arguing. And it just, in some ways, that's just who we've become. That, I think, is who Philip is in a lot of ways. Now, when you look at Philip, just to be clear, he is not to be confused with Philip the deacon, one of the seven deacons selected in the Jerusalem church. He's the guy in Acts 8 who leads the Ethiopian eunuch to, to Christ. That's two different guys. And so I think it's very, very important that you note that. Philip is a guy who oftentimes might be called a killjoy. But what's interesting is, is that he didn't start that way. It doesn't seem. It just seems that as, an, as he grows in his progression and spends time with Jesus, you just see more of who he is. The first encounter that we have with him, though, is in John chapter 1. Uh, in John chapter 1, uh, that's when you have a handful of the guys who have been following John the Baptist. Uh, as a result, they, they come uh, from John the Baptist, they follow Jesus. And it's in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 44, that we have our first run-in with Philip. And it says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, that's how we know where he was from, the city of Andrew and Peter. There you go. Couldn't be more clear there, right? Philip found Nathaniel. Now Nathaniel is going to be the next guy on the list, and they seem to be running buddies. And he said to him, Hey, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, 
It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so he goes to Nathanael. It seems to be that he's excited about what he has discovered with his comrades. And as a result, he goes to Nathanael. Nathanael also has something to say about that. It seems that he, in some ways, just kind of bypasses over what Nathanael says. And then he says this in the latter part of verse 46. He says, listen, Philip, come and see. He goes, you're just going to have to trust me on this one. You're going to have to come and see it for yourself. And so Philip is a part of bringing Nathanael to Christ. Now, that's one of the early instances we have, and we have a handful of other instances where Philip is a part of the story. I'm going to show you two of really the three or four that we have. And one of them picks up in John chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we know from Matthew's account that there's a there's a thing that Jesus is wanting to do to feed the multitude. He has a multitude of people following him and he wants to feed them. And it's in this particular moment that Andrew seems to be the unlikely hero because he connects Jesus with a young boy and his fish and loaves, as we addressed a couple of weeks ago. But it's Philip, the naysayer, the one who oftentimes is stacking up the inventory, who has something to say in this moment that I think... In his lack of faith, he misses what Jesus is trying to do. In John chapter 6, says Jesus lifts up his eyes. That's beginning in verse 5. Then he sees that a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, Hey, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, I love the fact that verse 6 exists because it says he said this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do. So here's Jesus, the master teacher. Now remember, Philip is an apprentice. He's a learner. He's still discovering who Jesus is. He's still discovering who he is. And it's in this moment that Jesus knows exactly how he's going to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. An estimated amount between 14 and 20,000 people, Jesus has the solution on how he's going to accomplish it. But he goes to the guy who counts inventory and he goes, hey, tell me, tell me what, what we're going to do here. Like he, Philip, give me your plan. In which, if Philip is who I suggest he is, Philip probably has already started his calculations. There's many of us in this room that you're already planning before the moment happens. And as a result, Philip has probably already looked across this hillside, the multitude of people, and he has probably already begun to count the cost. He's probably already beginning to think, there is no possible way. Not only is there no possible way, I'm assuming he's thinking, well, look, it's late in the evening. Uh, we know by Matthew's account that some of the apostles suggested just send them all home and let them eat at their own house. Jesus wants to do something. He goes to Philip and Philip's counting the cost. He's going, this isn't going to happen. And then he actually says something. Look what he says. Philip answered him. He says, hey, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. I suppose that he thinks, you know what? If we take this slice of bread and we cut it into fourths, like maybe if we just divide it up, like oh, maybe it's just we're just going to have little wafers. Maybe we're going to have the first Lord's Supper, you know? Uh, like he just is counting the cost. He goes, There's, it's not possible. It's not going to happen. Uh, we can take two-thirds year's wages, and we still won't have enough to, to accomplish this. And you have Philip, the naysayer, in some ways, who just in his pessimistic nature goes, 
It's not possible. It's just not going to happen. What's interesting is, is that there's a lot of us in our analytics, we know something can't be done and we just kind of stop right there. And oftentimes in our lack of faith and our lack of desire to be connected with God, we don't ask for his help. We just, in our natural flesh, we know what we can do and we know what we can't do. And oftentimes we stop our own lives because of our own limitations. And the fact that we won't walk with the Lord in many difficult places and we won't ask him to join us there, we can become like a Philip. Now, what's interesting is if you look at verse eight, it says that one of his disciples, that's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, then says to him, hey, look, Lord, there's a boy right over here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Even he has a little bit of doubt, but he says, but what are they among so many? But we know that Jesus takes this young lad's food and he multiplies it into where they have baskets and baskets and baskets left over after Jesus feeds miraculously this group of people. Now, you might ask the question, okay, why, why does Philip kind of take on such a bad rap here? Well, I think he takes on a bad rap here because Philip has been with Jesus for at least a year and a half, potentially a little bit longer. But this right now is the two-year mark into Jesus's ministry. Jesus is one year away from going to the cross in this particular moment. And so Philip's been long, along the, the ride with him long enough that as he's gone through difficult places, he has seen him heal blind men. He has seen him meet a woman at the well. He has seen him... Um, heal lame men and have them walk. He has, he has seen Jesus go to battle with demons and to cast them out. He has seen so many miraculous moments by this point that it's in his natural flesh that he does not see how God himself through the person of Jesus could bring such a provision for so many. And he misses it. And you may think, well, you're being a little bit hard on him, but let's just fast forward one whole year to John chapter 14. If you have your Bible, you just flip over. Um, seven or eight chapters to John chapter 14. And it's in John chapter 14 that Jesus is preparing his disciples for a moment that is imminent. It's just around the corner. In John chapter 13, he's already told Peter, the rock, that he's going to deny him three times. Now, as he sits in the upper room with these disciples, he is going to prepare their hearts for the trouble ahead. And it's interesting, he begins this even discourse, this section with these words, let not your hearts be troubled. And so as these men sit here, Judas is still a part of the clan. He, he sits with these men and he goes, listen, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he's going to tell them why. Why? Because in my father's house, there are many rooms. And if it weren't so, he says, I wouldn't have told you. And then he says this, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, like, what does he say? He says, you need to know that what? I'm going to take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And so Jesus is just preparing these men. You can understand the anxiousness that might be happening. Uh, these men who have followed Jesus for at this point now, two and a half to three years, they have grown in their apprenticeship journey. They have been students and learners. And you would think they've got it together. Like this is the moment where Jesus can send them out, that this is the moment they're gonna shine. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna go away. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Hey, listen, in my father's house are many rooms. 
And hey, if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. And all these things, you would think that in some ways, there's something in them that's growing. Like this courage, this veracity. And yet it's there that Thomas speaks and he goes, hold on, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Now we haven't gotten to Thomas. And so we won't spend much time on Thomas, but Thomas goes, hold on. No, it's not adding up. Like you're telling us it's two plus two equals four, but that's not what we're getting. Like math doesn't make sense to us. You're telling us you're going away. You're telling us where you're going, but we don't understand how we're going to get to you. And which Jesus then says this famous line in John chapter 14, verse six, and I'm going to encourage you to say it with me just to make sure we're all awake. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what? And no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says, hey, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And what's interesting is that when I've taught this in the past, I oftentimes give Thomas a little bit of a hard time. Because it's Thomas that we know and will later discover that does struggle some ways with trusting and believing in faith. But yet what happens next is something that in most of the time I've heard this passage taught is almost gone under the radar. And look what happens. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he says, and if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So Jesus makes a claim to his own divinity and his deity. He basically says, I and the Father are one. It's an incredible picture of Jesus saying, look, I am God. I am the visible image of the invisible God, as Paul said to the Colossians. Jesus says, I am here. What's interesting is what happens next in verse 8. Philip then says to him, Lord, hey, will you show us the Father and that's enough for us? Now, you might not understand what just happened here, but Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He goes, look, to see me is to see God. And then Philip goes, hold on, just show us the Father. All we need is the Father. Now, real quick, I don't have this in my notes, but I think it's worth going back to John chapter 14, verse 1. We'll just put it for you so you can see it because it's important to note what Jesus said right out of the gate as he begins this portion of his discourse. In verse 1, he says, <clears throat> Mark, will you put up verse 1? Yeah. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in what? Me. Jesus starts this section of teaching out with saying, look, I understand that there's a father, but you need to know that I and the father are one, that we are not one merely in essence, but we are, we are one in operation, that everything I do is of my father's will. And there is nothing that I have done that my father has not asked me to do. So Jesus and the father are one completely in everything. Even the selection of the 12, Jesus intricately woven together with the Father and the Spirit is doing all things because he and the Father are one in unity. And it's crazy to think that two and a half years, potentially even longer of this journey, and the disciples don't catch this, and Philip himself, the naysayer, misses it. And he goes, Jesus, just show me the Father. Just give us the Father. And friends, here's, here's the challenge with that. 
is that any of us in this room that get God without Jesus gets a God of vengeance and wrath and justice and which we could not measure up without a mediator and high priest in Jesus Christ. See, what, what Philip is requesting is actually craziness. Like in the audacity of this statement, he doesn't even understand that if he were to approach the father on his own, if he just got the father without Jesus, you get a God of wrath and justice in which we have no part in, in, in coming before his presence. Why? Because in Israel, to come in the presence of God, you had to have a priestly group, the Levites. But not only did you have to have a priestly group, you had to have priest. And then more than that, a high priest, one that could only go in before God's presence one day a year and make atonement for the sin of Israel. See, the reality is, as what, what Thomas was requesting is actually a bad system that was being replaced by the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going, look, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because in my father's house, there's a place. And I'm going to go there. And I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. I and the Father are one. You want the Father? Hey, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, in, in essence, is saying, hey, I am the cross. I am your provision. I am the bridge from death to life. I am the bridge in which you escape judgment from sin and you enjoy eternal life with a Father. And here it is. It's very easy for us to miss this, but Philip says, hey, just give us the Father. Then Jesus says to him, look at verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? In essence, he goes, Philip, what else do you need to see, buddy? Like, Philip, where's your faith? Hey, Philip, open your eyes, bubs. Like, think about all that they've experienced. He's seen the, he's seen the dead rise. Hey, there's a great, a great possibility that that Philip was there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's a, it's a great possibility that he has seen all these miraculous moments, and we know for sure that in his estimation of what could be done naturally, supernaturally, Jesus fed thousands. And here it is. He can't connect that Jesus is the Christ. And which Jesus then says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you say that, Philip? How can you say, show me the Father? I, I am him. I am, in essence, God. And so we know in this passage, and we can fully conclude, the disciples still have not learned everything they need to know, which is the apprenticeship journey, right? There's always something else for the student to learn. There's always one more thing the master would like to teach. And here it is, they still have not concluded exactly who Jesus is. Jesus goes on and says, hey, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He goes, listen, what you have seen has not been of me. What you have seen is the Father in and through me. And he is trying to help these men and Philip as well understand that he is indeed God.
Now look, why is that important? Well, here's the deal. If Jesus is not God, it reduces our faith to mere nothingness. If Jesus is not divine, as he tells Philip and the other disciples, then friends, our faith is futile. Our gathering, friends, is in vain. If Jesus is merely a normal man, he's not the son of God, he's not sinless, and he's not divine, then our faith is not worth talking out anymore. And so it's just very important to note that this conversation is an important one as he says, hey, Philip, I am God. Because if Jesus is God, then you know that God has never sinned. He has never thought, said, or done anything that would break his own law. As a result of that, God also paves the way for people like us to have our sins atoned for. And so it is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ that we have hope. It's interesting because what Jesus is wanting Philip to see is indeed who he is. I think it's what Paul writes to the church of Rome and says eloquently to Rome about who God is. Here's what he says in Romans 11, verse 33. I love this verse. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Like, we can't understand the mind of God. Isaiah 55 is very clear that we don't know what God knows. We, we, we underestimate his power and we have an, a natural inability to conceive what God is doing. That is true of us. But the reality is, is that if we're not careful in our natural limitations, we can become like Philip. Philip, a very intelligent man, probably great with inventory, probably great with estimations, probably great with pie charts, probably great with company portfolios and growth plans, probably in a lot of ways was good at that. In his planning, he had a natural limitation. And I would say he had an awe problem. He, he didn't trust that God was unsearchable and inscrutable. And how many of us in this room have an awe problem? I would say so many of us in this room, we have what's called an awe problem. What is an all problem? Is that we fail to see what God wants to do around us. We fail to see how God is working in our midst. So here's an all problem, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency gets up in your day. It makes a long list of to-dos and you never consult God on what it is you should accomplish that day. That's an all problem. Self-sufficiency says my planning is better than God's planning. And as a result of self-sufficiency, what we do is we spend day after day after day searching after our own plans, and we don't consult the Father himself. We spend probably very little time with God, abiding with him in his word. Matter of fact, we are to have an abiding relationship. John chapter 15, right? Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You know what's interesting? Jesus says this, in my Father's house are many, what? Rooms. Did you know the word rooms, minnow, is the same word for abide to remain? How do you expect to remain with God in the next life if we won't remain with him in this life? Self-sufficiency is an all problem. Jesus is saying, look, as I've been with you, you will be with me. It's the same word, rooms and abide, minnow. Sounds like minnow, it's M-E-N-O. It literally means to remain or abide. Jesus wants us to be with him. And self-sufficiency is all problem. We're basically saying, hey, we want you, but we don't need moments with you every day. Hey, our lack of faith is an all problem. What was Philip's all problem? It's kind of a lack of faith. Like, I, I don't know how we're going to accomplish this. 200 denarii wouldn't even come close to it. 
Our lack of faith is when we just don't trust God with big things. I suppose there's so many of us in this room that by a lack of faith, we might even believe that it's not possible to bring together an offering. It could have been a lack of faith that I didn't say, hey, let's not, let's not just do 30,000, let's do 50,000 in one Sunday, right? It's a lack of faith that oftentimes governs our heart. It's a lack of faith that oftentimes keeps us from moving forward in our faith. You ever fear man? Ever worry about what other people think? That's an all problem. It's just a classic example of how we oftentimes put the opinion of men as opposed to the opinion of God in us and for us. That's an all problem. Pessimistic attitude, if, if that's you, if, if when you think about Philip, you go, that's probably me. Um, I like to think of um, kind of the Winnie the Pooh characters. Y'all, y'all remember the, the, the naysayer? What's his name? Eeyore. Yeah. Philip is your classic Eeyore. There's many of us that we are Eeyores. Like as we go through life and as we get older, the more we grumble, the more we complain, the more we, in many ways, just become kind of a a person that most people don't want to be around. I would say, caution yourself against that. Caution yourself about becoming that kind of person. Ever struggle with materialism? That's an all problem, right? Those are ways that oftentimes we can struggle like Philip did. But here's the awesome thing is, is that Philip would eventually recapture who he was and who God was in his life. Philip became one of the greats in the early church. Philip became a man who was martyred for his faith. Philip became a testimony to so many. And what's so cool about this whole series, and I know I've interacted with several of you, are like, man, it's been good looking at all these guys. It's easy for us to think, oh, well, Philip the naysayer was always that way. But that's what I love about this discipleship journey. Just because you're one way today does not mean that that's who you have to be known for. See, as God does a work in our lives, it's a beautiful thing in how he takes beauty from ashes, isn't it? Isn't that the whole picture of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17? Is he, he gives us a new, he makes us a new creation. Be old, the old has passed away, and the what? New has come. And what's interesting about that is that when we become a new creation in Christ, it doesn't all get perfected right away, does it? Like sometimes it takes a while before God cleans up our, our language. It sometimes takes a long time for God to help us understand our finances. Sometimes it, how, it takes a long while for us to understand our need for the church and our relationship to one another. Like it just is a progressive journey, right? And I think if you're not careful, so many of us is we forget how much of a progressive journey it is. Well, Philip is a testament that while he missed it early on in a progressive journey, he recaptured not only the essence of who Jesus was, but the essence of who God was. And he gave his life for the gospel and he gave his life for the early church. He was indeed an apostle of apostles. And so as we hear that he was in some ways a naysayer and a pessimistic guy, listen, if he can recapture the glory of God, so can we. And I would just encourage you, that I don't know where you are, but that you would recapture the glory of God. And how do you do that? Like you can do that in the mornings, even when you see the sunrise. Like God uses creation as a beautiful picture and a plan just to help align our hearts, to help us realize, as David said, who, who are we, Lord, man, that you are mindful of us? 
in the universe and in the cosmos, we are mere spectacles, and yet it is us that God pursues. What in a testimony to allow us to recapture just our awe problem. In our pessimistic nature, may we understand what Jesus is saying when he says these words in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, and no one comes to the Father except through what? Me. And he goes, if you had known me, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. So from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So he goes, hey, from this moment forward, know that we're together and that we're one. Which when you start thinking about, that's incredibly powerful. Because here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, you feel lost in this room? Like you just feel like you're kind of wandering aimlessly? You feel like, like even just your future and the things that God's wanting you to do, you're just like, man, it's super cloudy, not real clear. I'm a little bit unnerved because of the decisions that I have ahead. And I don't even know which way to turn. What does Jesus say? I am the what? I'm the way. He goes, remain with me. I'll show you the way. Now, look, it's, it could be slow. It could be one day at a time. It may not be as we hope, but the reality is, is there's a comforting words that he tells Philip and the disciples. Hey, listen, when, when, you're, when you're worried, when you're afraid, when you're lonely, when you're pessimistic, just remember that Jesus is the way. When you're dealing with something that seems almost impossible, he's the way. And maybe you're confused or your life's chaotic. Maybe it's a little bit out of order. I often think about our house, especially when we had young kiddos and you have tons of things going on. It just feels like you're not ever home and you can never get your life organized and kind of where we are. So you feel like your house is always in disorder. You feel like your schedule is always frantic. And as a result of that, there's some kind of anxiousness that just kind of starts rising. Like, you ever been there? And just as a fast-paced American, like we just always kind of frantically going about. And as a result of that, like we just, we struggle in a society, not only to slow down and kind of get some order, but in the crazy chaotic nature and not abiding with God, we become disoriented as a people. It kind of starts in our schedule, then it kind of moves into other places in our life. And we just look up and sometimes we feel alone. We feel isolated. And it's there on that island, isolated and alone, that we get confused. The world starts speaking into our lives. We start buying a lie. Ever been there? What does Jesus say? In the midst of chaos and confusion in the midst of lies, in the midst of a journey that you're wondering. He doesn't just say, I'm the way. He says what? I'm the truth. In a culture that is very confusing, and even some of the things that I have recently read and things that I'm seeing even around um, kiddos and gendering, all these things, all the confusion in our society. Like there's a God who says, no, I'm the truth. If you want to find truth on a particular matter, whether it be politics or about what God says about us as his image bearers, look, it's in, God, it's in God's word. So look to find his truth. Maybe you're just here, you're just like, look, my life is hopeless. It's in despair. I'm here and it's a last resort. Like I don't have anywhere else to turn. I don't even see value in my own life. Jesus didn't just say, I'm the way and the truth, but he says, I am the life. Friends, you will not find life anywhere else. You won't find life in your job. Life is not something that your spouse can give you. Your kids cannot fulfill the very depths of your soul. There is nothing in this life that can give you satisfaction and total fulfillment. 
other than Jesus himself. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Philip, if you see me, you know that I am God. From this point forward, know that you've got to recapture your all problem. Know that this point forward, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Which means when all of God fills your heart, it'll, it'll, it'll lead the way. When the Lord fills your heart, he'll help you pursue truth. When all gets down in the depths of your soul, the very core, the very fiber of your being, he will give you life everlasting. And so, so many of us in this room, when we recapture the all problem that we have, ministry that seems right now like a burden will become a blessing. And there's so many of us that we're pushing away opportunities because it's a burden. It's one more thing in an already chaotic schedule. But when you recapture the order and the nature and the beauty of God and his word, then we fill our hearts with those things. When we understand who God is, generosity, it's fulfilling. It's not frustrating. It's not a burden. It's not a task that we just do. It's not just something we go through the motions. It's an opportunity to be a blessing to others. See, the reality is, friends, is that pessimism can't persist. Doubt has got to go away. And we have to trust the one who indeed is the way, the truth, and the life. Have a little Philip in you. Hey, praise God that he didn't stay there forever. And I trust if Philip didn't stay there forever, you and I don't have to either. At this time, I'm going to ask those guys that are going to help us with our special offering, if you guys will come. We're going to pray together, and we're going to stand and sing while offering is being passed. And thank you in advance for those of you that are going to give to this special offering uh, as we collect our Super Sunday giving. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. And Lord, I know there's so many of us in this room who can identify with this message. Philip, the naysayer. Philip, the inventory specialist. Philip, the guy who looks on a mountainside and sees so many people and so many little, so little resources already has reasons and doubts and excuses in his mind as to why things can't happen. Lord, would you help get rid of that in us? And Lord, would you help us, in, even in our realism, to not have a lack of faith? Lord, you tell us that if we have faith, even as minuscule, as small as a mustard seed, that, that mountains could be moved. And Lord, I just pray today for those in this room who there's a, there's a block and they're just sitting in their path. Like they don't see a way around it. They don't see a way they could hurdle it or overcome it. Lord, I just pray that we would heed the words of our Lord in John 16, where we know that this life is full of troubles but that we should take heart for you have overcome the world. Lord, when you say you're the way, the truth, and the life, that means that you give us a way when there is no way. You give us truth in a culture where there's full of lies. You give us life when everything around us seems to be in despair, that's disarranged, it's in disorder, and it just feels dead. Lord, thank you that you give us hope and life and eternal life through your son, Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to bear the weight of our sin. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us wherever we go. Lord, would you help us? Would you hold us? Would you keep us? And would you help us to move 
in our apprenticeship journey as disciples into people who are fully devoted towards you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.